Saturday morning at 7.30. We have our men's uh, prayer breakfast, so we need to um, make sure you're here. It's going to be a special time because we're going to have Wesley Hunt come, and Wesley is going to has thrown his hat in the ring to run for the congressional seat for District 7, which is the area just south of I-10, down through Bel Air, and over into uh, River Oaks, also down to on the other side of the Beltway, up through Jersey Village and that area. So it's a good time to get to know a candidate. It's a good time to become more aware of the whole civic process and what the issues are and listen to them. It's just a great learning experience. So I've invited Pine Valley and Sugarland Bible Church and Grace Bible Church to join us. So if you know any men over there, uh, you can go ahead and email them and invite them as well in case their pastors forgot to read the announcement that I sent them. So that happens. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge him and he will direct your paths. They that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings as eagles. They shall run and not grow weary. They shall walk and not faint. Fear thou not, for I am with thee. Be not dismayed, for I am thy God. I will strengthen thee, yea, I will help thee. Yea, I will uphold thee with the right hand of my righteousness. Be anxious for nothing, but in everything by prayer and supplication. With thanksgiving, let your requests be made known unto God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall defend your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. For the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we get started, we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to make sure that we're all ready to study the word, focus on the Lord, and to be prepared spiritually to study the word, to think about the word, and to be responsive to God the Holy Spirit as he uh, makes it uh, applicable to us as we are involved in our study. So after a few moments of silent prayer, I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Our Father, it's a great privilege we have to study your word. We're so appreciative of the freedom that we have in this nation of our founding fathers and those who even preceded them in settling this nation and the fact that they brought the word of God and were seeking to establish a culture and a civilization that was grounded upon the truth of your word. Father, we recognize that your word has been continuously under attack throughout the ages and the intensification has been uh, significant in just the recent years. The hostility open, uh, the open hostility directed against believers and those who hold to biblical positions are as, is palpable. Father, we pray that we might be gracious in our response, that we might demonstrate your goodness, your kindness, and Father, that we might use every opportunity to present the gospel and make the genuine issues clear. And Father, we know that there's so much distortion by legalists in our country that have really created more antagonism than, than uh, presenting truth. And we pray that uh, we might be able to be witnesses to the truth of your grace and your love. And Father, that we might also realize that there's a battle in our own souls 
between the truth of your word and the uh, propaganda of Satan's world system. And Father, we pray that we might be encouraged tonight as we focus on what you have given us in the truth of your word. And we pray this in Christ's name. Amen. All right, open your Bibles to Second Peter chapter 1, and we're in verse uh, 2. One, well, we'll finish up with 1b, and then we will also get into 2. And this is uh, a really important study, and it, we may get into some things related to this uh, a little bit more next time. I have various quotes and things I'm going to try to get to um, if I can. Tonight, if I haven't lost my place, and I haven't. So, um, let's just be reminded of what we've seen so far in the opening salutation. Uh, it's written by Peter, Simon Peter, who identifies himself as a bondservant or a slave. I'm beginning to like that, using that word more and more, because that's the connotation that it had in the ancient world. We often think of a servant as somebody who's uh, doing that as a volunteer paid position. And yet, that's not the idea that would have been communicated at in the first century. It was the fact that you were un- completely under the command of somebody else. You had given up your freedom in order to uh, serve them, and you no longer served on your own volition. And that's what Romans 6 is all about, that we're trans- transformed from being a bond slave to our sin nature, a bond slave to sin, to being a slave to righteousness, except most of us act like we're still slaves to sin nature. So that's that's really important. Peter calls himself a slave and an apostle of Jesus Christ. Then he addresses his audience. He says, to those who have obtained like precious faith. Now, what is it that they have received? I think this is important. I tried to clarify this last time. They're not receiving saving faith. They are saved. They have trusted in Christ as Savior. He's writing to the same people he wrote to in the first epistle. But they have received a body of doctrine, a body of truth. They have received, we might say, they've received Bible doctrine. They have received the Scripture and all that has been taught in the Scripture, these foundational truths that make up that which is Christianity, biblical Christianity, not the pseudo-Christianity that is often uh, seen in interviews when the media goes out and they find a liberal pastor and say, well, how can Christians believe in such and so? And then the liberal says, well, they shouldn't because that's not Christian when it's biblical. Uh, so they get liberals and they get others uh, as front men for uh, the devil's disciples. But we're talking about what biblical Christianity stands for, and it's a said body of truth, and we went through that for about five weeks, summarizing the essence of biblical, uh, biblical Christianity. So that's what we received. To those who have received, like precious faith, this body of doctrine, with us, that is, with us, the apostles. This is apostolic truth. With us. By the righteousness of our God and Savior. So when we get down to that last phrase, this is the Greek phrase that you, it is introduced by a preposition in. Now, if you read any grammars, and this last week I've decided to go back and just 
enjoy myself by reading a lot of different articles on these prepositions. Took a few naps along the way. But um, what they basically say is this preposition, by the time you get into the Koine period and into the first century, is it, 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 it almost means whatever you want it to mean. It's getting broader and broader in the way it is used so that it, it, it unlike in classical Greek where it had a more narrow range of meaning, now it has a broader range of uses. And by the time you get into the mid, medieval period, it drops out of Greek altogether. The Greeks don't use this preposition anymore. It, it got to where it could mean just about anything, therefore it meant nothing, and it dropped out of the language. But it often is translated as uh, as a location like in or within something like in a building. I've often had trouble conceptualizing that, and I think that the concept of means, uh, instrumentality is more useful, that it is by means of the righteousness of our God and Savior. And it is Christ's righteousness, therefore, that provides this body of truth. When we have that phrase, as we studied last time, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, you have two nouns, theos and soter. Theos for God, soter for Savior, and they're introduced with one article, the. Then you have the two nouns linked by the conjunction and. And in Greek, when you just have one article, it's not the God and the Savior. When you just have one article in front of the first noun, it links those two nouns together. And at the highest level, it's identifying them as equal. And this is what we studied last time in terms of the deity of Christ. So this is one of the strong passages on the deity of Christ that this phrase, God and Savior Jesus Christ, is emphasizing his deity and the role that played in his being the Savior. Now, it is his righteousness, so this is divine righteousness that is the focal point here, and we have to be reminded that righteousness is the standard of God's character. It is, we might say, the moral, the ethical standard. At some point, whenever you say there something is right, something is wrong, I agree, I disagree, you're appealing to some external standard of right or wrong. In God's righteousness, his standard is his own character, his own righteousness. He's not um, conforming to an external, abstract system of right and wrong. He is the definition of what is right and what is wrong. So it's on the basis of the fact that he is righteous. So his righteousness defines absolute right and wrong. It's the standard of his character. And when we look at God's justice, shifting over to this slide, when we look at God's justice in terms of his essence, that's the application of his righteous standard to his creatures. So the righteousness and the justice combine along with love in terms of how God treats his creatures because these different attributes that when I talk about them, we break them out like this because... Uh, we're just we're learning them and using them in in terms of an academic understanding, but when they're mixed up in God, just like when our attributes are jumbled together in us, they all blend together. 
They're not separated. We don't wake up in the morning and say, okay, for the first hour, I'm going to be honest. For the second hour, I'm going to be thrifty. For the third hour, I'm going to be patient. You know, we're just all of those attributes. Sometimes we're the opposite of those attributes, but that all makes up our character. So all of these attributes of God blend together in terms of who he is, his whole essence, his whole person. And so in God's love, which is a righteous love and a just love, he does what is absolutely best for his creatures. Therefore, Christ, on the basis of his righteousness, his standard, gives to us as believers a body of truth, a body of content, a body of teaching, a body of instruction, a body of wisdom that is ours. And it's to provide for us the information we need not only to have salvation, but to have life. Remember, Jesus said, I didn't come as a thief to steal and destroy. I came to give life and to give it abundantly. And so this source of truth, what is within the scripture. So this is important because what's introduced here by this phrase, like precious faith, introduces us to the basis for what is given, or the basis for what will be said in verse 3. Verse 3 says his divine power. So now it connects his righteousness and his power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. So that doesn't leave anything out. So, so where does that come from? That comes from what his divine power has given us comes out of that like precious faith, that body of truth, that doctrine, that teaching that is there from the, uh, from the beginning. So Jesus Christ has provided this for us so that we can have stability, so that we can have genuine, experience rich, full life, an abundance of life and joy and, uh, and fulfillment in everything that we do. Now, a lot of people say, well, life's pretty miserable. Well, maybe your circumstances are miserable, but remember, Jesus had some pretty miserable circumstances also. That is thunder, I believe. Just want to let you know, it's going to rain, but it's not much. It's not going to be like that time 10 years ago when we couldn't get home till midnight. Okay, so what did Jesus go through? Because a lot of times when we talk about having a life that is has joy and that has meaning and has significance and ha- is, is rich and full, we say, yeah, but i got these health problems or I've got these wealth problems or I have problems with, with my spouse, whether it's husband or wife. If you had the kids I had, you, how can you have joy and peace and fulfillment? Or if you had to work at this company where I work, and I heard a sad story not long ago. I knew a little bit about this, but it happened with a good friend of mine that I grew up with in church. We went to Camp Penile together. We grew up. We went off to college together, and then he went way out into the Tulis and got into a lot of drugs and other things, came back to the Lord uh, seven or eight years later. But 
he wasn't happy with what he did. He wasn't happy with his job. He had a wonderful wife. He had wonderful kids. But he was miserable at work. And he just couldn't trust the Lord for that that was where he wanted, that God wanted him. And as a result, he just turned his back on God and went through about 10 years of misery and then um, then developed extremely early onset Alzheimer's. But that's so sad. God doesn't promise us that we're going to have the circumstances that we want. He says we're going to have the internal resources so that whatever those circumstances are, we can have stability and peace and happiness and joy, and we're not going to be riding an emotional roller coaster because we're not going to live our life on the basis of emotion, but we're going to live our lives on the basis of truth. And so this is what we see with the Lord Jesus Christ. So when we look at the chart here, which I didn't complete, we have the righteousness, justice, and love of God, which combine with truth. Now, truth is going to be an important word here because that faith that we have is identified in Scripture as truth with the capital T. Jesus prayed through the Father, sanctified them by means of truth. What kind of truth? The next sentence defines it. Thy word is truth. So Jesus says we're sanctified. That is, we're set apart to God. We experience this ritual life that God has for us on the basis of his word. See, and that's what, what Jesus said in his high priestly prayer in John 17, 17 and 18. So this is really important to understand because what is challenged today is the idea that, well, we need something else beyond the Bible. The Bible is good for some things. It's good for uh, your spiritual life, but it's not so good when it comes to dealing with some of these other problems. And I've got problems inside. I've got problems with certain emotions. I've got problems with uh, all these, uh, with depression and discouragement and sadness, all this other stuff that's going on. And I need something beside the Bible. So we're going to get back to that. But see, what we have here is God is a God of truth. Jesus said, I am the way, the what? The truth and the life. He identifies himself specifically with that body of truth. And so this becomes the foundation for the life that Christ has promised us. So last time we looked at the fact that because Jesus is God, then this is the basis for him giving us his word, which Paul identifies as the mind of Christ. Now, Jesus had some problems. He didn't always have pleasant circumstances. He didn't always have wonderful people coming to uh, coming to hear him. He was attacked by people. He was rejected by people. He was... Um, assaulted by people. They wanted to stone him on several occasions. And then when he comes to the point where he's going to be arrested and go to the cross in the Garden of Gethsemane, in Matthew 26, 37, and 38, we're told that he took Peter and the two sons of Zebedee, that's James and John, and he goes off in the Garden of Gethsemane, and he began to be sorrowful, and deeply distressed. And the word there for sorrowful is the word um, 
that it's translated grief in a lot of places. He's grieving over what he's about to experience, but he doesn't grieve from a self selfishness. A lot of times our grief over losing things is because we attached to the things that we lose happiness that should be attached to God and not to the thing or the person that is gone. And because we put a have a misplaced expectation on a person or on a thing, then when that is taken away, then our, our emotions just take a nosedive. Jesus isn't taking a nosedive because of that. He's anticipating the fact that he is going to be identified with sin the next day. He who knew no sin was made sin for us, that the righteousness of God might be found in us. So he is distressed and sorrowful, but he so he has he has sorrow. And when we look at the Lord Jesus Christ, we know that he is God. And as God, how we ask the question, how can he be sorrowful? Because we automatically want to identify sorrow and grief as a sin. You're you're sad because you're not trusting God. But we have to correct that in our thinking because sometimes we go through periods in life when we're sad. Maybe it's because of a loss of a loved one. Maybe it's because we just are in a job or career where uh, we're not real happy. Maybe it wasn't what our parents intended for us or what we intended for us. Just think about Moses. You know, he had everything that you could imagine that the riches of Egypt could provide for him, the education of Egypt could provide for him. And after 40 years of enjoying the wealth and the abundance and all the fine restaurants and good food that's in Egypt, he's on the backside of the desert tending a bunch of sheep out by himself most of the time, and nothing around him smells real good. So it's not pleasant. Now, he had some high points, and it was good, and he uh, was with a good family with uh, Jethro. He married his daughter, and things were good, but it's not the life that he had anticipated, and he had to deal with the uh, refinement of his goals and objectives in life and what he thought was good and what he thought wasn't. Now, Jesus is looking at this, and twice in Matthew 26 emphasizes the sadness that's there. But then in John 15:11, now remember, this takes place just a, little, just a little bit before. So remember, Jesus is having the um, Last Supper, the Seder meal, with his disciples in the upper room. Then they leave the upper room, and they're walking along the shoulder of Mount Zion and around down into the Kidron Valley and across the Kidron to the Garden of Gethsemane. And as he's walking, he's having this conversation with them that is, uh, that is part of John 14, John 15, and John 16. And he says, These things I've spoken to you, that my joy may remain in you, and that your joy may be full. Now, what we see here is that there's some qualities to Jesus' joy that is distinctive. First of all, his joy can be shared. His joy can be in us. It can abide in us. And that word that translates remain is the same word that's used throughout John 15. It's usually translated abide. 
and it relates to our intimate fellowship with God. So part of that is when we're walking with the Lord, when we are walking by the Spirit, we're abiding in Christ, then we can have as our possession this this real, true, stable joy that is present, and that it can be a full joy, a complete joy. It's not a partial joy. It's not a joy that comes in and comes out that flickers like the lights. It's a joy that is stable. Then in John 16:22, he says, Therefore, you now have sorrow. He's recognizing that we live in a world where there's sorrow and there's sadness and that that's part of life because we live in a fallen world and we live with fallen people and we deal with unpleasant circumstances that are not what we desire. We live in a world where there's sorrow and sadness. And we li- you and I live in a world now where sorrow and sadness can't be explained because they don't have a doctrine of sin. They don't understand what has happened. So this is what's going on in this huge culture clash that's happening in our world, is that people have rejected the concept of evil, and they don't understand why they have these emotions, and that being sad at times and being sorrowful at times is, is okay. And so they want to run off to a psychotherapist, and they want to get drugs in order to make that go away. But it's all part of life and living. And so Jesus recognizes this, that therefore he says to them, you now have sorrow. That's real, and it's not because you're a sinner. Jesus had sorrow. Same words are used. But I will see you again, and your heart will rejoice, and your joy no one will take from you. So this is another thing we learn about this joy that Jesus is talking about, is it's dependent upon our relationship with the Lord, and that's between us and the Lord, and nobody can take that away from us. And then in John 17, 13, he says, But now I come to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. So the joy of the Lord can be, can be shared. It's part of our Christian life when we are walking with the Lord. The fruit of the Spirit is... Love, joy, peace, patience. That's part of the fruit of the Spirit. It is a a joy that can't be taken from us unless what? Unless we're walking according to the flesh. When we're walking by the Spirit, the Holy Spirit is going to produce this in us. And it isn't to to the exclusion of sadness. Jesus is is in the Garden of Gethsemane. He's immutable deity. We went through the passages related to his deity the last time. He is immutable deity. So he can't lose any of his joy. He can't, his joy can't be diminished, and it can't increase. So he has perfect joy in the Garden of Gethsemane. But he also is grieving. We grow up in a culture that says you're one or the other. Often in churches, it's one or the other. But remember what Paul said to the Thessalonians when he's helping them understand what happens to those who physically die and precede us. He said, we grieve, but not like those who have no hope. And the word there for grieve is the same word that's translated sorrow here and that the Lord is experiencing in the Garden of Gethsemane. So at the one hand, you grieve. But it's not a hopeless grief. 
It's not a pitch black bottomless depression because you are focused on the Lord. So at the one hand, you have an overriding joy, but at the other hand, you miss someone, you're uh, you regret that you have certain circumstances, perhaps, and they're not th- what you have, but you're focusing on the joy that you have in God's will and plan for your life rather than on on the details of life. So sorrow and grief, disappointment and discouragement are all experienced by every human being as part of our new normal in a fallen world. Because we, we are fallen creatures with a sin nature, because we are living with fallen people, sinners, and because we are having to deal with all of the corruption that is part of living in a fallen world, then um, we have to learn how to have joy without focusing on the fallen world as a source of our happiness, our joy, And we can't focus on fallen people as a source of our joy or happiness. We can't focus on any of the details of life because that's all been corrupted. We can only focus on the Lord. This is why the psalmist in Psalm 23 says, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, if I go in treacherous places, in dangerous places, in unpleasant places, thou art with me. And thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. God gives us comfort, gives us the ability to go through those difficult circumstances. Now, all of this sets us up for understanding Peter's train of thought as he goes down through verse 2 and into verses 3 and 4. It's the righteousness of of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, that provides us with this body of truth. That is where we learn how to have this kind of walk and where we are are strengthened. Now, verse 2 develops this a little bit. It sounds like a standard greeting from the ancient world. He says, grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Now, notice it's a different phrase here, of God and of Jesus our Lord. You don't have the same kind of construction, so here it's talking about God the Father and Jesus our Lord. So here we have the two distinct members of the Trinity mentioned. But he starts off with what appears to be pretty standard normal greeting. When we see people, we say, hey, or we say, hello, we say, how are you doing? But in the ancient world, if you were Greek, the standard greeting was to say karain, and here it's charis. It's modified a little bit under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit because he's not just talking about a normal greeting. He's talking about the grace of God. The second word is peace. It's arene in the the Greek, but it's shalom in the Hebrew. So he's taken, Paul has taken the uh, Greek greeting and modified the word a little bit. And he's taken the Hebrew greeting, shalom, And he combines those because that is at the core of the spiritual life. Because of God's grace, we can have peace. Peace relates to tranquility, contentment, stability. It relates to joy in the midst of whatever is falling apart around us. And however unpleasant our circumstances may be, because our hope, our happiness, our joy, our stability is not based 
on everything around us being the way we want it to be, it's based on God who's immutable, then we can have stability. You can't have stability in life if that which you depend on is changeable, is mutable. But if it's immutable, then you can have a platform for stability. So what he says here is grace and peace be multiplied to you. And then we have the same preposition again, the preposition in, in the knowledge of God and Jesus our Lord. Now here he uses uh, the preposition in, it's by means of this knowledge. And the word for knowledge here is a word familiar to most of you. It's the Greek word epinosis. And we'll talk a little bit about epinosis in a minute. But epinosis is based on the root word for knowledge, which is gnosis. And then it has a preposition a prefix that does something to the basic meaning of that word. So they're not exact synonyms. There's overlap, though. Gnosis is the broad word. So that epinosis is really sort of a subcategory of, of gnosis. So that you can have knowledge of God. And what the writer's talking about is the same thing as if he talks about epinosis. Because gnosis is a big, broad term. Uh, epinosis is a narrower word. We'll talk about the exact meaning. But that sets us up for looking at the closing verse. Or next to last verse. Peter says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. Notice the similarity. He starts off and he says, grace and peace be multiplied to you. And that word multiply has that idea of may it be exponentially expanded. So that we're going to grow in more and more grace and more and more peace. Well, this is exactly what he's saying in 2 Peter 3.18. Grow, and then it's in plus the dative. Grow in the by means of the grace and the knowledge. But notice here he says he includes, it calls it gnosis. And I think that the reason he shifts to gnosis is because knowledge is progressive. You start off learning facts. You learn information. You remember perhaps the first time you met your wife or your husband or uh, someone you were romantically involved with. And when you did, the first thing you wanted to do was, well, who are they? Where are they from? Uh, are they educated? Are they a believer? Uh, what, what, what things do they like to do? And you began to learn facts about them. But it was only when you spent time with them that you begin to learn who they were and develop that personal relationship. And a lot of believers get stuck in stage one, and they're just busy learning a lot of facts about God and a lot of facts about Jesus and a lot of facts about the Bible. But it doesn't take them to the next level, which is developing that more intimate uh, fellowship that comes when we walk with the Lord and walk by means of the Spirit. So... Uh, here, Peter is saying, grow in the grace and knowledge. And he uses a broader term for knowledge, so it includes those baby steps when we're learning facts and information about God. And it would also include epinosis as a subcategory, which emphasizes the more intimate relationship with the Lord. So that's how we grow. We don't grow by music. We don't grow by having a good social life, 
None of those things are wrong. In fact, they have a place in Scripture and in the spiritual life, but they're not the basis for spiritual growth. Spiritual growth is based upon the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. That's why Jesus says in his high priestly prayer, sanctify them by means of truth. Thy word is truth. He doesn't say thy word and good fellowship and having a good time with other believers and singing a lot of good good snappy songs, that that's how you grow. It is thy word. It's the word. What's interesting is, and I've heard rumors of this over the last five or six years, that there are people in the contemporary Christian music sphere that are beginning to get a little tired of it. And this last uh, several months, I think, I don't track a lot of this, but there have been a couple of... um, uh, prominent believers, pastors, and music leaders that have apostatized, seriously rejected the faith. They've hit all the big newspapers and media outlets, and they have just absolutely uh, dishonored God in huge ways as they have uh, fallen in, fallen away from the truth and rejected God, rejected Christianity, rejected the Bible, everything. And there was a musician... I'm not familiar with at all, involved with a um, a contemporary Christian music group. And he came out, and it was just, it was just enjoyable to listen to him say, we have developed a whole generation of people who get their understanding of God and their theology from shallow, superficial choruses. And this has produced an extremely weak, church and extremely weak evangelical community in this country. And he went on and said a lot of things in a good way. He said some things that shows that he's not quite where he should be yet, but at least it seems like he's pointed in the right direction. And he's got a popular platform so he can say something. Maybe some people will wake up and realize that the issue is the word, not the music. So, we have to grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ. We uh, do this in terms of grace and peace, experiencing those uh, attributes in our life. And it's by means of the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. We need to study these things. We need to think. And it's not, this isn't superficial. You don't just memorize ten attributes and say, oh, I understand the essence of God. That's just a starting point. Uh, the way in which you get into the scripture and look at what these things are. That's just a good way to begin uh, developing. So we come to this. I want you to notice, since we had a little lesson on commas recently, that this verse ends with a comma in the King James, in the New American Standard. Anybody here use New American Standard? If you've got a New American Standard, it ends with a semicolon. If you look at a couple of other translations, they put a period at the end of verse 2. And how they punctuate the end of verse 2 impacts how they try to communicate an extremely awkward Greek phrase, which is at the beginning of what we have as verse 3. And it's, it's, it is. It's an awkward thing, and I was awake at 2 o'clock this morning, so I had my iPad out, and I'm going through some Greek commentaries and grammars and trying to figure this thing out, and finally that made me go back to sleep. So we come to verse 
three, and it's it's translated literally, but that doesn't really capture the the nuance of the verse. As is really that's the first word. It's a, he, I mean it's the Greek word host. As his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which, and then we have to get into that and discover that which, uh, by which have been given to us, that is the knowledge of him, has been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises. What a wonderful thing that is. I remember when I must have been about eight years old and my mother gave me this little packet and it was a little plastic box and on the cover it said magnificent promises of God. And that was just great. And that's when she had me start memorizing. I already knew a few verses, but she had me doing a little more Bible memory. Uh, By which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these, that is through these promises, you may be partakers of the divine nature having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. See, that's a great promise, because what that tells us is that we can escape the corruption that's in the world. We can live above that corruption, not live wallowing in the midst of that corruption. Now, we live in a world today that says that you have to have... you have to have a certain amount of understanding in terms of psychology, or you have to have a certain amount of understanding in terms of any number of other disciplines, philosophy, and this and that. But but the idea that just by knowing and internalizing the Bible and the Bible alone, that you can avoid this corruption and you can have this level of happiness and stability is just ridiculous. That's the view that's out there. And it's been out there for quite, quite some time. And, in fact, I'm going to read something to you. As I was doing some reading and studying on this today, I ran across uh, a quote in, in an article dealing with uh, psychology in the church and sufficiency of Scripture. I think this is a chapter called The Sufficiency of God's Word that is in a book called Psychology in the Church by Dave Hunt and T.A. McMahon. And Dave was just a great Great godly man. I had the privilege of getting to know him personally over many years. He stayed in my house one time when he and Tommy Ice were teamed up to for, to film a debate against uh, post-millennialism uh, in Dallas, and we had a great, great time together. He had a Plymouth Brethren background, and I've known a few people who came out of a Plymouth Brethren background, and he had more scripture memorized and at the tip of his tongue. Uh, just, just phenomenal. But he had a passionate belief in the sufficiency of Scripture. And he wrote a book called The Seduction of Christianity that I still think is one of the top five or six books that every Christian ought to read because it should wake us up to how our whole culture in evangelicalism has been psychologized. And so he wrote this particular article, and in here he he summarizes a some statements made by a seminary professor, David Wells, who I've read, he's really deep. He taught at Gordon-Conwell. I don't know if he's still alive. I tried to get him to speak at the Chafer Conference about 10 years ago, and he had reached an age where he didn't travel anymore, and I was really disappointed at that. But what he does is he's, David Wells is talking about what happened in Christianity Today. Now, Christianity Today was a Christian magazine that was founded in 1956 by the Billy Graham, uh, by Billy Graham, 
and he uh, was on the board of that organization for many, many years. And it, uh, it continues to be published even today. But what he's going to do is look at, in this quote, Wells looks at the history of Christianity today as a barometer of what has happened in evangelicalism over the last 60 years. So he says, um, Wells says, when Christianity today began, Advertising was about 3 to 7% of the space. Three decades later, so that would be by the mid-80s, advertising was 30 to 48% of the space. Tells you where the emphasis is. Uh, fundraising business, Sunday school peanut butter, gold embossed rings, all of this is being advertised in Christianity today. In 1959, 36% of the articles were focused on biblical doctrine. By 1989, doctrinal content was 8%. See, that's what happened in evangelicalism during that time. The emphasis on doctrine went from about 40 to 50% down to 8%. We wonder why we're in the state we're in. He said in 1959, a regular section explored biblical revelation, the personal work of Christ, the gospel and Christian salvation. But by 1989, this column had been replaced by success stories, pains of a midlife crisis and marriage, people strug- stories of those struggling with homosexuality, people who didn't have as much money as they would like, struggling with the diet. The shift is to the problem and not the solution. He goes on to say, in these three decades, Christianity Today moved to a therapeutically constructed faith uh, the central concern of which was psychological survival. Thus was biblical truth eclipsed by the self and holiness by wholeness. <coughs> by 1989, Christianity Today looked like a poor cousin to Time magazine, though a little more pious. By 1989, gone was the vision in which the magazine was born. Gone was its moral and intellectual fiber. Gone was its ability to call the evangelical constituency to greater Christian faithfulness. Reflecting the nostrums of the therapeutic society had been transformed from a vice into a virtue, and popularity had been transformed from something incidental to Christian truth, something incidental to Christian truth to something central to it. He goes on to say that since this is an, about Christianity Today, uh, launched a magazine called Leadership in 1980. I had a subscription to that, mostly for the great cartoons. But he observes on that that the articles were single-minded in their devotion to the wisdom that psychology and business management offer, and apparently of equal single mind, equally single-minded in their skepticism concerning what scripture and theology offer for addressing the practical problems in the pastor's life. Even when the subjects being discussed were subjects about which scripture had much to say, the authors of the articles and leadership thought it would be better to look elsewhere for help than in the Bible. That is so true. And see, that's what has fed pastors and churches and seminary professors, we have lost the doctrine of the sufficiency of Scripture. So as we look back at this first verse, verse 3, 
That first word, as, is a real bugaboo to try to translate. And the NET did a pretty good job of explaining the problem. And what they said is it starts out with as, and then it's followed in Greek by this really convoluted thing that's sort of unusual called a genitive absolute construction. And that's where you have a genitive phrase that becomes the subject of a, a previous verb or is related to a, a verb that's back in verse 2. So together, they write, they form a subordinate causal clause a more literal rending would be because his divine power. So the way they translate, I thought was good. This is the NET, NET translation. It says they, they, it's almost like a little bit of a paraphrase at first, but it gets the idea. It sets it up as an independent statement. I can pray this. See, verse 2 is the prayer that grace and knowledge be multiplied, uh, be multiplied in you by the knowledge of God and of Jesus Christ, our Lord. I can pray this because his divine power has bestowed on us everything necessary for life and godliness through the rich knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. This is one of about three or four verses in the scripture that really focus our attention on the fact that God has given us everything we need, and it's in the scripture. It's not looking somewhere else. We don't need to go to seminars. We don't need to go to counseling. We don't need to do these other things. And I mean counseling in the sense of psychotherapeutic counseling where you start going and you're going for six or eight months. I have a lot of people call me up and say, I need to figure out how to handle a particular issue in my life. We get together. We talk. That's the end of it. That's not, that's not the kind of psychological counseling I'm talking about. And so um, what we have here is this emphasis that it's God's power, his omnipotence, that divine power there. Again, it's a little bit of an unusual phrase in the Greek, but it refers to God's omnipotence that he has given us. He has gracious. Whenever you see God as the subject of a verb that means to give, it, it emphasizes grace and that God's grace and here connected to his omnipotence. Earlier it was connected to Christ's righteousness, that he has given to us everything, not some things, not most things, not the good things, but everything which leaves nothing out, everything necessary for life and godliness. And then he says that's through the knowledge of the one who called us by his own glory and excellence. So we learn about what he's given us by studying God, by learning about God. And that changes everything. Now, these two words that are translated life and godliness, the first word is the word zoe, which means there's a word bios, which refers to just biological life. Zoe refers to life. You'll read some commentators think this refers to eternal life. I don't. I think the spiritual aspect is all covered in the second verb. Zoe refers to our physical life. God is going to take care of us physically. He's going to provide the food, the shelter, the clothing, the jobs, the, whatever those details are that you need to accomplish the mission that God has for you. He's not going to forget about you. He's not going to, if you end up homeless, then God has a purpose for that. There's somebody down there under that bridge that needs to hear the gospel. And you're the missionary that God has sent there. 
that, that we have to understand God has a plan and he doesn't forget about us. The problem that we have is that we are often focused on wrong expectations and unrealistic expectations. So that first word, life, refers to all the basics for just generally living. And then the second word, eusebeia, refers, it's usually translated godliness. I like to translate it as spiritual life. Because that's what it's focused on. Our spiritual life is focused on the objective and the goal of conforming us to the image of Christ. Okay, that's godliness. To be godliness, and as an English word, means godlikeness. And so it's transforming us into the character of Christ. So he's given us everything for that. So this is foundational to what the Bible teaches about the sufficiency of Scripture. And this is a term that is often used. We talk about the sufficiency of grace. We talk about the sufficiency of Christ. We talk about the sufficiency of Scripture. Actually, all three, Christ, grace, and Scripture, are all interconnected. But it tells us that the Scripture gives us everything. But I looked, did a lot of research today, went through a lot of different things, looking for someone to give me a definition of what sufficiency of grace was and didn't get very far because nobody actually defines it. They all just sort of assume that you understand the basic English. So let me break this down. First of all, it's the sufficiency of Scripture. So let's just be reminded of what Scripture is. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture, not some Scripture, not most Scripture, not the New Testament, not the Old Testament, but all Scripture is breathed out by God. This is the Greek word that. Neustos, it's God-breathed. The source, the origin is God. He is a character of truth, righteousness, and justice. That's the source of what's in the Bible. So God is able to communicate it through fallen human vessels because he is able to oversee the process to guarantee the result without letting their sin natures and their human personalities get in the way. But he doesn't obliterate their personalities either. So he's able to do that because he's God. We'd have this little small view of God. A lot of people do. And God is incredibly powerful and able to do things that that don't override our volition, but at the same time uh, prevent sin from tainting the results. So God breathes out the scripture, and it's profitable. That means it is what produces teaching or instruction for reproof. That means to tell you it's wrong. So if your toes aren't stepped on pretty regularly when you're listening to Bible teaching, then something's not right. Because the Bible is always stepping on our toes because we're constantly swimming in a, the quicksand of human viewpoint. So we have to be reproved and corrected. That tells us the, the correct response instead of the wrong. Reproof tells us you're wrong. Correction tells us this is the right way to go. And then we're instructed in righteousness, living a righteous life. For the purpose, in verse 17... That the man of God, that's not a sexist phrase, that refers to any believer, that the man of God may be complete, that is sufficient. A sufficient word has to be, I mean, the word has to be sufficient to produce a sufficient believer. 
And he's thoroughly equipped for every good work. That means we can handle anything in the spiritual life, but it comes from the source of studying the scriptures for every good work, not just some. All right. The word artios is also uh, what we have here for uh, equipped, and it's related to the verb, uh, or the noun is to be equipped. We equip the saints. That's the role of the pastor. And the verb is ex artizo. Or I think artios refers to complete. So we're fully qualified, we're complete, and we are uh, equipped exartizo for every good work. And another, katartizo is the word that's used in Ephesians uh, 4, 10, and 11, that the uh, apostle, prophet, evangelist, and pastor teacher equip the saints to do the work of the ministry. So we equip how? Through the word of God. That's the, that's the goal. So uh, sufficient means that it's enough. Enough sometimes sounds like well, just barely. But enough means enough. You don't need any more. It is uh, all that you need. So if you have enough to eat, you don't need more to eat. If you have enough money to pay something, then that's all you need. You just you have enough. You're qualified. So sufficient means it's enough, it's adequate, it meets the needs. God has given us his word so that it meets each and every situation that we run into in life. So theologically, this means that the scripture informs us of all that we need to know to face and handle whatever circumstances we find ourselves in. Now, when we think about the statement that the word of God is sufficient, the opposite is to claim that the scripture is insufficient. So if you don't believe that the Bible is sufficient, if you believe, well, we need to have pastors need to have more training in psychotherapy and counseling, then what you're saying is the Bible is insufficient. I was involved in a conversation about 30 years ago where there was some debate as to what was the role of Christian psychiatry. And so a luncheon was set up. And there was a lady there who had been involved in psychology, and she gave her little testimony about how you know she had spent years at this church, and she had learned all this doctrine. But when she went out to the U of H and got, got and started studying psychology and social work, that oh, that solved her problem. And just to make things clear, I said, so what you're saying is the Bible wasn't enough. That brought the house down. Because that, that's the subtle lie that's there, is that the Bible really isn't enough. It's not only insufficient, it means that uh, it's deficient. That we, can't, we can solve our real problems that we face every day in life, whether they're relational problems, whether they're emotional problems, whether they're... Uh, financial problems, we can solve them and have happiness and stability without submitting to the authority of God's word. And that just runs counter to everything in Scripture. Scripture is teaching us to be absolutely dependent upon God because he has promised us, Jesus said, I came to give you life and give it abundantly. 
So Jesus makes this outright claim that he gives abundant life and he is sufficient. And for 19 or 1800 years in the history of Christianity, you had apostles and you had early church pastors and you had missionaries and you had theologians who had all kinds of personal problems because they were all rotten sinners. There are stories about different um, pastors who had incredible bouts of depression, who had serious illnesses. I know of one scholar that it was said that he never got out of bed. He was, but he wrote incredible um, commentaries on the scripture, but he dealt with this profound sadness on the basis of the word of God. And so he didn't give up on life. He had health problems that kept him bedbound, but he uh, he used that. And so you have these stories, and the, because we don't read Christian biographies, and in many cases today they don't emphasize you know, the problems that they had, we don't realize that many of these great uh, men of faith that we hear about really struggled with emotional problems. They struggled with sin problems. They struggled with... Uh, difficulties in their families. They had difficulties with their children. You go to the scripture and you find all kinds of people who had um, problems in the mar- their marriages and problems with their children. How would you like to have been Hosea? God says, I want you to go marry a prostitute. And then when you have children, I'm going to name those children and they're going to be the most outlandish names you ever heard of. Talk about family problems. But it all was to teach the grace of God and the goodness of God to Israel. God has a plan and a purpose. And the problem is that we many times don't like that plan and purpose. We don't like where he's taken us, that he wants us here. and He's put us in these circumstances. And we why can't I be over here? Well, because that's not where God put you. You may want to be a quarterback, but God's got you as a defensive tackle. And you're just going to have to do well there because that's where God's put you. And God's gifted you there. So we have to learn to submit to the authority of God, and he promises that he'll take care of us. So we'll come back next time and continue in our study on the sufficiency of Scripture. Father, thank you for this opportunity to to study this and be challenged, because all of us struggle with the sufficiency of grace and the sufficiency of Scripture. We want to do it our own way. We want to uh, help you rather than just completely submit and rest and trust in you and recognize that your plan is better than our plan and that we think that happiness lies in so many different details of life when happiness only resides in a close relationship with you fulfilling your plan. Father, we pray that you might challenge us with what we're studying as we go forward in Christ's name. Amen.